Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Adel Amarsi Unplugged. Okay, this is one of those special shows where I'm just kind of going to wing the introduction a little bit more than I usually do, simply because I love this guy. I'm not spoken to him for two, three years now. I think the last time we spoke was 2015, right, Josh? Yeah, about two years ago. Damn, it's been a while. Now, the guy that I've got on today is, of course, my friend Joshua Long, as you read the title on the screen. Uh, this guy is behind Bottleneck Breakthrough, which surprisingly is one of the sponsors of the show today. So bottleneck breakthrough, bottleneckbreakthrough.com. I will learn how to speak English one day. Um, here's the actual URL. Links is always in the description. And we're always sponsored by adelmarcy.com and abrasiveentrepreneur.com. Now, Josh, Bottleneck Breakthrough is your book that's basically just coming out around the same time the show comes out, right? Yep, yep. November 1st, 2017. Damn. So, like, there's some stuff that I was reading in your bio that even I didn't know about you. I was like, holy crap, I know this guy? How do you not know that he does this stuff? So you've worked <laughs> mostly, like, with B2B companies in, like, the eight to nine figure territory, right? Yeah, I've, I've moved up from the seven to eight and just on up. I, I've never worked with a nine figure company yet, but um, look forward to soon. As in, like, you're helping them get to nine figures. So it's like $10 million to 999 nine sorry ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand ninety nine yeah yeah right, right. a crap ton of nines basically what you get on the monopoly board if you press nine enough times um right but yeah so your background is well i, I just want to preface to everyone that's listening to this right now oh it's not going to apply to me and shut up the same strategies that work at those high figures actually work on the lower level sometimes even better at the lower levels because we don't have as much stress we don't have as much of a team to handle and we know what we're doing we're, we're easier to move I was just going to say the easy to move is it. I mean, it's once the big companies, once you get over 15 or 20 million, it can be really hard to make any change. It's like a cruise ship turning around versus a jet ski. Yeah, it, it shit is not easy to do. And watching it is actually hilarious seeing who can do it fast because jet we just <laughs> right. like ride circles around the cruise ship. Right. right that's the thing. Now. Real quickly, because I want to blow, I want to blow your trumpet a little bit here, and that sounded like a euphemism. It wasn't. <laughs> Maybe I do. Who knows, right? Giggity. No, I'm kidding. I, I actually want to like sing your praises. That's all it is, because like I've seen what the work you've done, and you've been like such a really cool dude to me over the last two years. And especially when we do connect, it's always a good thing. Um, yeah, but so, yeah, so we don't get to do it as often as we want. But you've like freaking worked with the legend himself, Chet Holmes. Um, mm -hmm. For his company, you've worked with Tony Robbins. Well, Tony Robbins actually had the company as well with Chep. I'm not sure if you guys worked together, but you've worked with guys like um, uh, Keith Krantz, Jay Abraham. You worked with Dan Candy at one point as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Perry Marshall's another one. You've basically worked with the who's who of the industry, of nearly yeah. the industry. Yeah, I've, it, was, it just was happenstance. I started out with um, Dan Kennedy and uh, Bill Glazer, just really loved their stuff. Uh, like the immediacy of Dan's marketing strategies for small business. I always use the analogy that his approach was running out on Monday, get clients by Thursday, deposit the check from the clients before the check for the ad clears on Friday. And um, it just it just felt very immediate, very small business cash flow friendly. So that, that was what drew me to Dan and Bill. And then um, from there, ended up working with Chet and got to know Jay. And then I never worked one-on-one -on -one with Tony, but he was always in the background when I was working with Chet. Um, and most recently, uh, really dug deep with Perry and um, have, have really enjoyed his community and helping helping his clients and stuff. So it's right. been it's been great. So I got a question for you that's going to sound really stupid, but like 
it's all to, good. To break down exactly what you do for companies, how would you convey yourself right now? Yeah, you know, that's always been the biggest challenge. And I think that's one reason I'm grateful the book is coming out is it's helped me force myself into a process. Um, up until about three years ago, every client knew me for a different reason. <laughs> some clients called me their computer guy because I would help them with some IT networking stuff or they thought I was the website guy or they thought I was the brochure guy or whatever. I mean, they just all knew me for different reasons. Um, and so it wasn't until about three years ago that I had a couple clients that just laid their businesses bare to me. Let me take the highest level perspective and look at what they needed uh, at that moment. And that's the beginning of the bottleneck breakthrough uh, method that I outline in the book. And I had been noodling on the bottleneck idea over the years. Uh, back in 2006, I had a mortgage brokerage and I found if I just fixed the next bottleneck in, in our process that the business would continue to run more smoothly, more efficiently and grow. And it, and it did until the credit crisis hit and the bottom fell out of that business. Um, <laughs> there was no more bottleneck because there was no, no more bottle. The bottle <laughs> <Exactly>. left me. <laughs> yes, the bottle was uh, exploded. Um, by the end of 2007. So uh, anyway, I, I just found that finding and fixing bottlenecks is a consistent way to growth. And so the way that I describe it now is that we have to assess where you're at revenue-wise, talent-wise of staffing, resources. And there's usually these plateaus, revenue plateaus that, that businesses hit. And so depending on the revenue plateau, there's usually one or two obvious bottlenecks that are very common at that plateau, but there's different ways to solve it for each business because their business model's a little different, their industry's different, their resources, talent, interests, whatever. So the way that I describe it is I help unlock either new profit or new revenue growth or both by finding and fixing the one or two bottlenecks you're facing right now. That's pretty cool. So like, what would you say is the most common bottleneck with businesses below the seven-figure mark? Uh, it, so below a million dollars, um, it's usually just organization, just having clearly defined roles, responsibilities, and tasks. Cause when businesses start the owner, I mean, 99.9% .9 of all businesses are bootstrapped by a founder that is good at fulfillment of whatever that, that service is. So like for you, copywriting, you're a great copywriter. If you want to grow to a copywriting agency, you're going to have to have a bit a business development person at some point, you're gonna have a project manager at some point and you might get some junior copywriters uh, on, on board. So, but as you grow it, you've got, you're doing everything. If you drew an org chart, your name would be in every box. And as you get past the 250, 300, 400, $500,000 a year revenue turnover, um, there needs to be clear responsibility of one person in charge of one specific task or system or outcome. And so that right around 500,000 is where most businesses need to create a very rough org chart with assignments of responsibilities of who does what, because up until then everybody was comfortable just jumping in and rolling up their sleeves and getting anything done. And they're all multi-talented and everybody in a company at that size is comfortable with change and actually likes the variety, but it, starts breaking down and the finger pointing. Oh, I thought you had that. Oh, I assumed he, she had that. Oh, this was done this way forever. I thought 
they were taking care of it. And there's just no clear responsibility. So it between a half a million and a million, really management starts becoming the bottleneck. Huh. That's interesting. Because I'm just looking at my own stuff because uh, we, we all know guys, even to this day, that kind of hit that 500000 to a million dollar thing on their own using the product launch formula, right? Exactly. But what, but you also find they lose all that money fairly quickly because they don't know how to manage it. They don't know how to keep it going, so they have to do another launch to like keep the wave riding. Exactly, right. It's the systems. And so right at a million, 100% of the time, I've yet to see this not be the case. So business owners can, a lot of them, with the right business model and, and market and all that, can grow to a million dollars a year. But they're never going to grow past it until they get an operations manager. And I call it a little Napoleon that's going to just drive fulfillment and, and crack the whip. So until that operations person is in place that the owner can trust completely, they don't have to give them equity, they don't have to be a partner, but that they can trust completely, they're just going to keep running out of time uh, themselves and they're going to keep running into that ceiling of a million dollars. Oh, yeah. That's not a bad ceiling, to be honest. I mean, No, if, no, if, not at all. Yeah, because like, just to give you guys an idea, I actually did my expenses uh, a couple of months ago just for the fun of it because I wanted to see what it would look like. I actually figured out with a about $1.3 million, which is a million pounds here in the UK. I live in like central London, by the way, like the heart mm -hmm. of London. Have you been before? I, I don't know. I've never, never been to the UK. What the hell, dude? Get your ass over here. <laughs> Just fly out. Brits, awesome. Brits don't like working with Californians. I don't know why. So <laughs> Not this Brit. I fucking love Californians, dude. They're like my favorite people in the world. <laughs> so just fly out. That being said, my friend Jillian, who was born in California but raised in Boston, yet she mm -hmm. retained a Californian accent. It's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, she was like, yeah, when you fly out to the States, again, just, just, go, just go to California as much as you can. I was like, why? She's like, it's it's a sea of you it's just you <laughs> over there i was like that would explain why i don't get on with like people over here to do business right, with right. like i can That's do business hilarious. with americans where it's always fun but what i was gonna say was um your, your like, expenses yeah yeah i actually figured out that if if i traveled every weekend like every single weekend just travel to a new place in the u in europe and then some place sometimes over to the u.s wherever just based on travel expenses and not hotels and living expenses and all the other fun stuff, business costs, I can probably live quite comfortably at the rate that I'm living at for about another 20 years without ever having to work another day mm. on a million pounds, which is right. insane to me because I'm like, how bored would I be out my mind? Right, right. I mean, don't worry, <laughs> well, that's, there's no fulfillment. That's with a uh, high net profit business model of, of a leveraged talent that you've got. So the typical small business doesn't have those kind of luxurious margins. Yeah. So it's a great spot. It's a great skill to leverage for sure. Yeah. I mean, I got to admit though, like there are some copyrights that, that they always look at them and go, how the hell do you actually get to a million dollars? Cause I've not yet done that. But then obviously mm -hmm. it's because I've got systemization. She said they've got junior copywriters, they've got operations management. And also uh, they didn't have this crippling self-worth issues that I had for a really long time. So that's just, I think that's kind of requirement for copywriting is <laughs> pretty much crippling self-worth and some kind of uh, medicating addiction that uh, to compensate for it so everybody that tells me they want to get into copywriting i'm like so you're going to become an alcoholic or uh, do blow which is it so oh no there's you've, you've got the <laughs> other ones there, there's more fun ones you're either going to sure, become sure. an alcoholic do blow become a nymphomaniac mm -hmm. uh, 
crack addict because I've seen a few of those. Oh, really? You're going to be a pothead like crazy because that's the only way you can sleep at night sometimes. Mm. Um, my the way I actually deal with it is I'm addicted to going to the jujitsu, to like just doing jujitsu most of the time. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so that's my addiction is combat. Sports. Joe Rogan and Anthony Bourdain outlet, right? Oh yeah, hell's yeah! But the thing is, I've been fighting in Muay Thai since I've been fight. I've been doing Muay Thai for as long as I've been writing copy. The only thing is, mm. I stopped doing Muay Thai because I didn't want to get kicked in the head anymore. Right, um, right. It kind of affects your communication ability, right? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't mm. like being. I'm not a huge fan of shin being shin kicked in the chin. It's it's mm. not a fun way to make a living. Yeah, Grand I think step. Daniel Cormier would agree. Yeah, pretty much. Though so <laughs> he'd probably cry out cheater at the end of that one. So by the time the show comes out, I hope Jones is cleared because it seems way too fishy for him to be on steroids. It does. I'm like, he's the best in the world, clearly, before any of this, but okay. Well, either 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 it's fishy or he's just the worst cheater ever. So <laughs> Why would you get busted for something so terrible? Oh, so yeah, yeah, especially when you know the schedule is coming up. Right. So, yeah, right. You, you pissed clean during the random ones, but random during, ones. yeah, right. yeah just, just go ahead and slip it in. It'll be weird. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, was like, as far as it goes with like uh, the ball net breakthrough, because I do want to bring it back to this, because this is super fascinating to me, just simply because... Um, I've had enough clients come to me in the past that go, the biggest bottle, the the best bottleneck in our business is we're not sure how to create the funnel or write the copy or whatever it is, which is perfect for me to come in as equity or come mm-hmm. in as a one-time thing to set everything up. But with you at the higher end game, how the hell did you get into that? Because again, you start with your mortgage brokerage business, that bottoms out. You find, you've, I'm assuming at this point, you're still like a huge Dan Candy, Bill Glazer fan. Mm-hmm. how does that transition to meeting chat homes and doing all these crazy cool things? Yeah. So I just, I, um, tried doing a teleseminar series back in 2008 and I ended up with a gal named Laurel Langmire that I liked on, on the interview series. And I was asking her how about her start and she says, my start start or what? Well, I said, go back as far as you want. And so she told me that she was broke on the back of, some financial catastrophe in the nineties and got connected with Kiyosaki and started selling his board game and making commissions off of selling his board game, I think. And I thought, Oh, that's a great idea. I could go work for somebody else. Cause with the Dan and bill, um, I had gone to a lot of their workshops, but and I, I had become one of their independent business advisors, kind of like a pseudo franchise they had, but there wasn't any opportunity to work more closely with them. Right. And so, I, I thought, who do I really respect that I get, I really connect with? And Laurel was one of them. I almost asked her on the spot, like, hey, you need any help with something? But I didn't. And I thought, you know, I really enjoyed Chet's book. I got a lot of value out of it. Um, it the principles in it, like the Dream 100 strategy, the stadium pitch and stuff. And so I just emailed him and um, got recruited uh, by his uh, friend who became his the CEO of the company, Mitch Russo and Mitch and I hit it off and, um, I got started there and then got offered the position to help in the, the new consulting division. And then after he partnered with Tony was asked to be the marketing director of the company. And, um, yeah, I mean the rest is history really. It, it, it opened up a lot of doors. That's really interesting. Yeah. Mitch is a really cool dude. I'm friends with him. I've mm-hmm. spoken to him a couple of times, but man, that guy is insanely talented. Yeah, he's a great systems guy. Um, he's got a lot of strategic ability. Obviously, he had to to run with Chet, but yeah. Mitch Mitch is a good doer. He gets he gets, gets it done. Yeah, 
quick question on the sign up here. So it's Ultimate Sales Machine that you were actually talking about, right? The book that yeah, yeah, Chad's book. Yep. Yeah. So Stadium Pitch, because I want to just talk about the one, the the Heart One Hundred Simples, like the hundred people that you want to work with, or mm-hmm. like I do it for interviews and people I want to write for, mm-hmm. and uh, it works. So essentially, guys, if you're listening at home, here's some homework. Go get a notepad and pen, because I find if you write it on uh, on your computer, you will forget. If you write it by hand, you always remember. It's kind of weirdly influential because you can show it off to them and they're like, oh, he didn't just write this. It's actually here. Um, write down a list of 100 people uh, that you want to work with, you want to interview, that you want to be, inf- you want to influence or whatever it is, that you want to become some form or another into their world and just start making calls. And I'll, I'll, I'll make one tweak. I, I encourage you to just start with 10 Ooh. Um, because... A hundred can feel overwhelming, can feel daunting. You start second guessing, well, who else do I need to add? And and just start with 10. Um, and for a lot of my clients, I say, who are your dream 10 clients? Because they've, they know who they are. They just haven't figured out how to get in front of them. And so with 10, we can make a custom tailored approach and outreach to each one to get an opportunity to, to get to the decision makers table. So just start with 10 and go from there. Cool. I'm actually going to subtract my other question because I want people to read this book if they haven't already. Stadium pitch is an awesome thing. You just brought up another interesting question for me anyway. When it comes down to um, getting their attention, because um, I'm assuming they get a crap ton of emails every day, just like everyone else does. How do you stand out? Like, what is Josh's thing to stand out? Oh, you mean like when I sent Chet the email? Yeah. Yeah, so it's really funny with him. It was just uh, using his own language against himself. So I think I used the subject line, your next superstar hire or something, because he talks about hiring superstars in the book. And then I just put on my biggest arrogant, cocky asshole pants and uh, wrote the wrote the email from that angle to uh, it, it really is just interrupt his pattern um, using a Tony statement. Um, and so it, with each person, you, you just got to find out their what their motivating factors are, what their psychology is. I think Tim Ferriss does a good job of when 4-Hour Workweek came out and he was using that to network a lot. He talks about all the different emails. And Noah Kagan's used this in a couple case studies I've read where how to make an approach email. And it, it, it all comes back to matching their psychology. And like clients that I, I we start with, going after specific uh, target audience that they know it's a captive market, whatever. I, it, the sales reps that write the initial outreach emails, they try to be too formal. They're like, hi, so-and-so, you don't know me, but I work for ABC company and we do X, Y, Z. And um, the reason I'm writing you today, and it's like, well, you just wasted 10 seconds of this person's life that added no value, right? It gets back to copywriting, right? You got to grab their attention. And so I, I just did this for a client the other day, um, and they're going after uh, Fortune 500 clients, and they work in that space. So it's not like aspirational. It's just how do they get in front of more of them? And I changed the email uh, instead of "Hi, I'm so and so." I mean, it's in your in it's in the inbox. It says your name in the inbox, right? I mean, so what's the point of introducing your name in an email? It's very redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I changed it. It's like, hi, Steve. Um, and I go right into, uh, 
you may not know about this great research we did on XYZ, um, but here's a nugget that I think is useful and then a link right to it so that you're curating something of use that they can read one sentence, click and get value from. And then you can continue after that um, with long form, longer form sales copy or the ask. But um, I, and the other one I do is I really and I give a big hat tip to Seth Godin in, in the book um, about permission marketing, because that was the first marketing book I'd ever read way back in the day. And <clears throat> taking them step by step, make a small ask. So in an outreach email, don't ask, hey, you want to sign this hundred thousand dollar year contract? Um, I mean, that's there's no warming up, there's no trust, there's no permission given to go to the next step. And so it it could be as simple as, um, hey, I saw these two things wrong in your book or on your website, or I noticed you don't have Google Analytics on your landing page or any, it doesn't have to be anything you help with. It's just something that you're, or that you're specialized in. It's just something that you help with. Uh, to get their attention and start earning some trust. So there's all sorts of different ways. I mean, there's mastermind dinners or whatever. I can't remember that guy's name. He talks about introducing famous people together and bring them together, and you get you get to ride the coattails of being the middleman. Joe Polish? No. No. Um, I know who you're talking about, but my brain is like drawing blank right now. Yeah, I'll look it up while we're talking. But Ugh, it's pretty awesome. There is something that you did uh, say as well. With uh, Noah's actually going to be on the show soon as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He's a good, Noah's a good guy. I like mm-hmm. Noah. But um, something that you did mention as well as mirroring the psychology, a really good book for that is uh, Influence by Robert Cialdini. Right, right. Yeah, Great book. Classic. classic. But it does uh, work into the whole idea of mirroring. Yeah, Mastermind, Mastermind Dinners is Jason Gainyard. So, Ooh. yeah, he's built a whole empire on connecting, bringing great people together, and then writing the coattails of the connection. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an incredible way of doing it. I think that's also the reason why if you're smart with how you do your podcasting, I always like podcasting as a strategy. I actually cover in uh, my course story selling blueprint and the bonuses mm-hmm. on how to make like two grand back in 30 and 30 or 60 days. So we broke it down as in if you have a mailing list, if you have an unresponsive, unresponsive mailing list, and if you have no mailing list, um, and the no mailing list, I'll share the strategy here, it's fine, because there's more nuance than what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Start a podcast, get in front of the right influences, connect people that you've interviewed before with the people that you're about to interview if there's connection, mm-hmm. or put your, if your service is actually good for them, like mine was, a ton of my guests have been clients of mine since. Like I've interviewed them, I'm like, oh yeah, cool, great, great having a chat with you. And in the end, I'm like, genuinely want to say, how can I help you? Um, right. People will always tell you how you can help them. Again, it's the whole permission. And I would say that going back in iteration before Mastermind Dinners was Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never Eat Alone. Ooh, um, great book. It was another good one, yeah, that he talked about his meteoric rise in the marketing departments of the Fortune 500, and uh, it was all around networking after his undergrad at some Ivy League. I don't know if it was Harvard or Yale or something, but it he, he realized that taking people out for meals is a great way to uh to connect with them get pick their brain whatever it's not as easy as i'd say today as it was because everybody's so dispersed and we're working globally now more than more than ever but it's it's still useful it it plays off the same principle of just constantly reaching out trying to connect with people to add value yeah 
Um, and again, it, it is in a way something that a lot of people say what we do today has made it a lot harder to do, you know, the old school taking someone out for a meal. There's an easier way to get in touch with someone nowadays. Just get their, um, if you get their address for their work or for their, for the person's home or whatever, or ask them, Hey, I just want to send you something. Is that cool? Send them something that's, um, just the whole thing. It's like, it could be a book, could be a notepad, could be that's related to them. Like, uh, a friend of ours, Chris McCombs. I don't know if you know him. Mm -mm. Uh, big Chris McCombs, great guy, really introverted, surprisingly, mm. really amazing writers. The way he is, his blog is probably one of my favorites of all time. Um, he's a massive like film and movie buff, like I am, and a big like he just loves story in every aspect. Right. So what I did to really connect with him is I sent him something with a sticker on it that just said Chris saw this, thought of you, Adil, sent it. That's to it. Him. That's right. Yep. And all I did was I messaged him on Facebook again. Hey, Chris, I saw something for you. Uh, what's your address? I want to, I'll send it to you. Yep. So when he gets it, he's like, oh, A, it's adult. B, this is really, really personal. And C, now I've got to pay more attention to this guy. It, it's yep. just a great way of positioning yourself. And if you're thinking, how can you can get in touch with Josh? Uh, simple. Buy his book. Annoy the crap out of him. And um, share this podcast continuously forever, and keep just saying, <laughs> "Yeah, Josh, I saw you on this thing. It was absolutely amazing with this guy called Adol. Can we can we talk sometime? I'm sure he'll reach out to you and be like, cool." <laughs> right. No, it it works. And and one thing I'd suggest is do follow the step you said of message them to get their permission to send it. I don't know how many friends I have that are pseudo famous, whatever that get blind mailings and bizarre requests and it's just very awkward so take your take a step back and ask do i look like a stalker or do i look like somebody that could actually add value to them and the yeah. line is very slight i mean it, it the line definitely bleeds um over on both sides on that one. Oh yeah there's the other aspect as well that you want to consider when you um even ask them for their address to send them something. The, the, the best thing about that is, again, it's permission-based, so, mm -hmm. so they know what to expect. And I've received gifts from my consulting clients, and I don't know who sent it to me, so I don't know who to, <laughs> who to say thank you to, and sometimes right. they don't show up. Right. So I, don't know I got a go. book. I got, I got uh, Supermensch, um, Shep Gordon's story. I loved his documentary. I've watched it on Netflix a couple times. And I've talked to a bunch of friends about it. And then one day, I get his book in the mail. Never ordered it. I thought one friend who uh, really liked the documentary mailed it to me. He's like, nope, wasn't me. I contact the distribution house. They're like, we don't know who submitted it. We just got the submission request. So I have this book about Shep Gordon that I have no idea who sent it to me or how I got it. So, yeah. If you're listening to this person that sent it to Josh, <laughs> just send him a message saying it was you. It's it's probably killing him. I'm not kidding because I know Josh well enough to know that he's a really good guy, and uh, it's going to be one of those things where it it bugs you that you can't say thank you, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I just it's one of those. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I love the documentary. It's one of my favorite documentaries of all time. So to not be able to commiserate about it with somebody is uh, is a lost opportunity, in my opinion. So what's the actual documentary about? Because it came up on my Netflix a few days ago, and I haven't seen it yet. It's on my saved list for this weekend. Yeah, just it's it's called Supermensch, and uh, mensch is a Yiddish word that means somebody who is generous and of highest honor. Um, 
And so if I got that definition right, but that's how I perceive it. And Mm -hmm. it just talks about his career in the entertainment business, helping make, I'd say, B-list entertainers and C-list entertainers hit the A-list and how generous he was throughout his life. And Mike Myers of of, uh, Wayne's World fame and uh, Austin Powers fame, he uh, he's the one that pushed did the documentary because Shep was so generous with him in the nineties when he was going through some hard times. And so it's really just a tribute to this amazing man who in a, in a world of backstabbing and two facedness in the entertainment world, just always kept his word and always came through and did the right thing for everybody. So it was really spectacular. That's something I really, enjoy as well as when people actually have integrity mm-hmm. um because it's gonna sound really stupid because the business world reflects very similarly to the entertainment world and actual every world there is mm-hmm. it's the ones that keep their word and do whatever they can to sort you know do whatever it is they say they're gonna do um they rise to the top sooner or later mm-hmm. like uh, i can't tell you how many times i've seen this where I've had someone say, yeah, I'll give you a hand. Yeah, I'll send you mm-hmm. something. And I don't want to sound like a dick about it, but I feel like a complete asshole if I mess them saying, hey, you said that you sent me that thing. Right, it, it does. It just, it's it's it, our empathy. It's just our empathy is hard yeah, to it, we feel like we're being like, a pest or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll say that's one reason I've really enjoyed working with Perry Marshall over the last few years is he is the most ethical guy in the marketing training business training world that i've i've ever come across and um everybody that that is in his world one guy said it best he said the reason we stick around is because we found perry at the end of a very long and bumpy journey um filling in the blanks of saying we've been screwed by a lot of other people in this space yeah he's actually one of the nicest guys out there Mm -hmm. definitely Um, big heart Massive. cares a lot yeah. yeah really really cares about his uh, customer base how they feel what's really going on for them but also at the same time um he does not take any shit from anyone which right. is awesome like I, I just love the fact that he doesn't do that he's like nope don't really care you can give me shit that's fine by you right i'm gonna love you but know that you're not welcome <laughs> yeah and i think that was modeled from dan kennedy i think dan also has a big heart and cares about his community but puts up the gruff front and exterior uh, to to keep the drama at bay. Yeah. Um, I actually met him, uh, I want to say 2015? Mm-hmm. 2016. It's 2016, yeah. It was last year I met Dan Kennedy uh, at, he did his last seminar in London, like one of his last mm-hmm. of, like, tours in mm-hmm. London. And I was like really happy to meet him because I asked him, how do I increase my consulting rates? Because at, at the time I was charging like 1200 Mm-hmm. An hour, and I'm at twenty five hundred. I'm going up to five grand. At, well, at this point, this when this comes out, it'll be five grand. Cause it's October first that um, we do that. I raise the prices. Mm-hmm. He uh, he actually turned around to me. and goes, "Well, you could do that, or you know, all those people that can't afford to pay the higher price." I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Group coaching. Get three mm-hmm. of them together. Get them all to pay twelve fifty each mm-hmm. or twelve hundred each, and just spend ninety minutes with them. So you spend thirty minutes at a time with them." But because they're there for 90 minutes, it feels longer. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you're there with 30 minutes per person. You're just like, you're, you're maximizing your time. I was like, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, the one that he gave me on that front was uh, the seesaw. I, I The way I see it in my head is 
start, deliver great value so that you build a waiting list, a book of clients, get get your lead flow going so that once you have a waiting list, raise your prices, then you're gonna that waiting list is gonna dwindle because of the new price and then keep delivering value, keep getting results, keep driving more leads um, for yourself. And then once the waiting list keeps growing, keep raising your rates and it's just this constant seesaw out of demand um, that, you, that your price is ratcheting up as your demand keeps um, increasing. That's actually really powerful. It's a great way of building that up. Wow. And or he always said, just charge whatever you can keep a straight face saying. <laughs> that, was yeah. the, that was the other one. But I find that the seesaw of demand just makes it feel more authentic to me that I'm look, I'm I'm booked. I can't get to this. So if you want to get in the front of the line, you gotta pay more. It's just Yeah. It's, it's just uh, a supply demand. Calculation. To be, to be fair, if anything, that seesaw is so Dan Kennedy. If you if you get to know him, or even speak to mm-hmm. him for five minutes, you know that's more him. The other yep. thing where it's like charge as much as you can say with a straight face, that's more jokey Dan Kennedy when mm-hmm. he's like, I'm being serious, but at the same time, that's eh, a little tongue cheek. Right. Um, it's a lot a lot harder uh, yeah. done than said. Yeah, it's it's one of those crazy things. So. Obviously, you you like to kind of keep in peak performance anyway in the way that you are, right? So mm-hmm. whether that's in business or in health, what's your balance that you found? Because again, that is the bottleneck for a lot of people in their personal lives, which is also a bottleneck in their business. How do you do it? Um, well, I'm not in peak physical health, so uh, <laughs> that's my that's my bottleneck in my life. Um, I'd say that the getting the balance, I have a great marriage, I have a great family, I have great friends. I'm got through a lot of uh, mental demons over the years. So uh, health is the last stage for me to really master. But I think the, um, the key for me was backing out my business model. A lot of people think, Oh, I need to make say 150,000 a year to live a comfortable life. So that means divide that by 2000 hours. Okay. I need to charge 75 bucks an hour. And that's my, that's my nominal rate. And the reality is that for freelancers or, um, some type of professional service, most can't bill at 40 hours a week. Now, maybe if you're in a law firm and you're, you've got all the operations management taken care of and billing and everything, and you're just being a lawyer, for the practice, you could you could get your billing up to 48 hours a week. But that was the biggest realization I had was that my income target couldn't be based on 2000 hours of work a year, because even in my busiest weeks tracking my time, I use a uh, um, toggle to track my time. It's just a web based app. And uh-huh. I, I noticed like even in my busiest weeks, the amount of hours I could actually bill a client was probably around 30. Like that's the cap. Um, but I probably am, am, am at 15 to 20 hours a week of actual billable time for clients. Now, for guys like us, where we're thinking about our clients all the time, once the, they're retained or once we have a project, it's always back processing. We're uh, in the shower thinking about it. We're driving thinking about it. We're reading something, and then it comes up that triggers an idea for the client. So can't say that it's on, that it's only 15 to 20 hours a week of true work, but at the end of the day, if I was going to ethically bill clients on an hourly rate, which I don't because I just hate tracking hours, um, that it would be 15 to 20 hours a week. So for me, it would say, 
let's say it's 15 hours a week of actual billable time and I want to take a reasonable amount of time off that let's call it uh, 40, 40 weeks a year at 15 hours a week, that's only 600 hours. So if I'm going to make, uh, let's make it easy math, 180 grand in 600 hours, what's that? $300 an hour, right? So it's, it's actually using sober math, I, I would call it, to say <laughs> how much am I actually working? How much can I actually bill and what's the income goal? So that's to me the first part of finding balance is a lot of people get in with really bad business models or bad assumptions about their business model. And so they say, I have to build, bill 40 hours a week at this rate to hit my income goals. But then they're basing it off of 52 weeks a year or 50 weeks a year. And they're only getting a couple weeks off, in, which is usually just infill time. Um, and so 50 weeks a year at 40 hours a week and to hit their income goals. And so anything less than that, they're underwater, essentially. And so they're using all that extra time over 40 hours, plus admin, dealing with the government, dealing with filings, dealing with tech issues. Your computer goes down, your cell phone dies. You got to get that replaced. That's all time that, that it takes to get that stuff done. And so if you're already at the 40 hour a week minimum, um, then you're working 60 to 80 hours a week. Then where do you fit in family, um, health, friends, all that other stuff. So I, I think that's the biggest shift for most uh, people in our spot that I found is when you're a freelancer or uh, a professional service of some kind that you're, you have to deliver it. Uh, you got to get your income way up compared to the hours you bill. Yeah. You, you just can't like live on that whole idea of, Oh, you know, I've got this many billable hours I can do. Mm -hmm. Um, it's actually the reason I kind of switched over to consulting more. Mm -hmm. Because as much as I love writing copy, and I do, I used to charge like, fit, say, seven and a half to like 25 grand. Mm -hmm. Even though I could have, I could easily charge 100, but you know, that, those pesky self-worth issues that come mm -hmm. up that cripple you so badly. Yep. Uh, by the way, just going back to this, you also, you, just a fair warning to anyone that wants to be a copywriter, and Josh, you can steal this one as well and put it in there. Um, whenever you warn someone, because I'm definitely going to be telling about the whole narcotic addiction thing. Um <laughs> You're actually going to have a crippling, close to bipolar depression type mania most of your nights. And we're also going to throw this one in there. Um, you're, you're either going to go that way, which you will, or you're going to be stupidly arrogant. Right. And, and, it's, you are. and it's the self-doubt because we all know in marketing, even the best of us are wrong half the time uh, when it comes to some assumption or some persuasion mechanism. and. Yep. Um, I, a guy like Frank Kern, he and I were talking a couple years ago and somebody was asking him, um, in the conversation why he doesn't offer copywriting anymore. And he says, cause it stressed me out. And here's a guy that has had some great wins in the product launch formula model of for guys and written great copy. And he's, he isn't a very effective copywriter, but it stresses him out when money's on the line and a business owner is paying him a fee that. He's like, what if this doesn't work? What if this doesn't get the outcome that they need? So then he puts in two to three times the amount of effort to guarantee the results. And then his hourly's off and his, the upside's not there and, and the stress throughout the whole process. So I joke, I, when clients ask if I do copywriting, I tell them I'm a B minus copywriter because then I don't have the standard held of being an A plus copywriter that they expect the world of me to in the first draft. So that's a funny one I've thrown in there just to take the pressure off myself. 
yeah you've got to you've got to have a, it's kind of like having a sense of humor with everything you've really just got to have fun with it in mm-hmm. a certain way um otherwise yeah you're gonna you, you, you're gonna have a pretty fucked up head and you've well got yeah to be- and then it's also choosing clients because yep. when clients come to you and, and you're their hail mary and you need to knock it out of the park or else they're filing bankruptcy or something then it, that that's more pressure that anybody with a reasonable amount of empathy, which all copywriters should have so they can put themselves mm-hmm. in somebody else's shoes to understand what it takes to convert them. But then you're also now carrying the burden of this business's success or failure on your shoulders when there were a million bad decisions up to this point that got them to this. Oh, and yeah, you're going to, it basically it completely will depend on you and, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're most likely, if it goes terribly wrong, you're the one that's going to get crucified, not exactly, the million right. bad decisions. Yeah, exactly. You're, not the million bad decisions. It's um, the scapegoat. The, yeah, it's the scapegoat. I, I, there's a phrase. I don't know if it was from the restaurant world or the music world, but you're only as good as your last performance or only as good as your last meal. Um, and along that lines, if you're the one that is involved in the dumpster fire, you're going to get the blame for it, whether you just came in at the end or, um, you, you've been on in all along. So yeah, that's, that's definitely one that I, I avoid completely is being the hail Mary. I don't like having a gun to my head. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of that anymore. I always make sure that if a client comes in and I'm working with them, I always ask them, what are you doing currently? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, don't stop doing that. They're like, but it's not working as well. It's like, yeah, but if you start working entirely, it takes me three months to write this goddamn ad because I want it to be brilliant. Right. Then you just lost three months of revenue and you're going to blame me. So right. fuck you. I don't want to be there. But I will exactly. say this much for uh, copywriters out there that are thinking, oh, but I don't know if this thing is right for me. I'll, I'll tell you this much. If, if you pick your clients accordingly, and even if you don't, it's just a really quick tip. Um, if you're dealing with the thing that I hate the most, which is being asked, how's the work going? <laughs> Genuinely makes me cringe and makes, it, it, it drives me into a blind rage. Uh, the other that I found out relatively recently, you know when someone sends you like a transcription back of something and it's like blocks, it's like pages of no paragraphs, it's just like a block of text? Mm-hmm. You ever seen that, Josh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That apparently gives me anxiety attacks. I had no idea until today. Because you're afraid of something hidden that you have to troll through to find, or? Oh, I don't like reading really long paragraphs. It's because uh, I've also got ADD and dyslexia. Got it. Right. So, so it's like reading words. I'm like, did I read that right? Did I say that right? What's going on? <laughs> Enter, I just sit there and just press like the enter key until I've like got everything down. I'm like, I do the same thing. That's so funny. <laughs> it's just brilliant. I think it's because we have like. We know we can fix a problem if we can see it better. See it clearly. Small, yeah. yeah, it's in the short right. grass. We can see it long grass. We can't. So mm-hmm. the way I deal with um, anyone that is, hey, how's it? Uh, you know, when's it going? Uh, when's it going to be done? I, I put this into a clause of my agreements, which says if you ask me that more than twice, <laughs> um, you're immediately fired. Your That's accounts hilarious. are billed, and then you're rehired. In, you're rehiring me immediately with a 30% increase in what you originally paid me. So right. say you pay me 10 grand, you only paid me five of the deposit. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd end up paying me ten the 5,000 that you owe me plus 13,000 on top of that for being an asshole. So you'd mm. be at 23 grand. And they're like, <laughs> wait, I what? Because I asked you a question twice. I'm like, yes. That reminds me, just- I, had a, I had a roommate. He was a great mechanic. He was an airline nice. mechanic. And um, 
so he always liked working on all the girls' cars that uh, were hanging out with us because got got him free dinners, free dates, whatever. But he, uh, I would, I would go out and help him on occasion, and it, he had a funny line. He's like, "I'll do it for free, but if you watch, I'll charge double, and if you help, I'll I'll take your money." Um, so it was it was that same same line that if you're gonna look over his shoulder or micromanage, he's not interested. He just wants to get it done. Yeah. Because usually we know a thing or two. That's why we don't involve you. Um, bring that up because I do want to like circle back a little bit in a moment. The, my favorite question is coming up on the show, and it's simply this. It's one of my favorite questions, rather. When you actually had your ass handed to you, because you know, uh, lever number six in your book is get is mindset. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about systems. We've talked about management, strategy, marketing, uh, vision. By the way, these are all the levers in josh's book and he goes into like great depth because I've, I've seen the revised version it's absolutely brilliant but mindset you you've dealt with this when you were on your ass i mean like literally on your ass life is holding you down pinning you by the shoulders and going haha guess what buddy you ain't getting back up what was it that gave you confidence to rise back up and how did you regain that confidence yeah it's a really good question so for me uh, just a quick background mortgage market falls out August of 2007 IndyMac goes insolvent and my brokerage mortgage brokerage proceeds to go insolvent over the following months following that and so we filed bankruptcy and um, in 2008 and met with a bankruptcy attorney who was a mentor of mine when I was in grad school we met with him in early 2008 a week after our first child was born so that whole line of don't have kids till your financial house is in order and all this stuff kids don't notice they don't care um, none of that matters in my opinion. And so it was, and I was 29, so I wasn't even 30 yet filing bankruptcy. And the, I'd say a couple of the biggest things was one, having an amazing wife, uh, who's an endless cheerleader. It's her fault. I wrote this book. She challenged me to it two and a half years ago and, um, <laughs> said, just do it. You'll figure it out. And, uh, encouraged me and gave me space throughout the process. Um, so having that as a support uh, is worth all the gold in the world, in my opinion. Um, I had some good counsel and mentors through the bankruptcy and after that encouraged me. And my bankruptcy attorney, he's a great human being. He said, when I was signing the papers, he said, this is like a badge of honor uh, for creating future wealth. I know a lot of investors that won't invest in somebody who hasn't failed yet. And, uh, it was, so it was just constant encouragement of guys like that. And then the, the other one was my wife challenged me. I think it was before the bankruptcy. Um, she came up to me and before the wheels fell off and before we had kids and she said, just sat down next to me out of nowhere. She said, do you think you're going to die by the time you turn 30? I was like, no, why? She's all, well, you have this mania about you like that that you have to achieve all of these things before you turn 30. And, uh, it, it was shifting the perspective of, I don't have to prove myself or become financially free or retire by the time I'm 30. That it's ridiculous to put that kind of pressure on myself, but it all stemmed from insecurity. Um, so that, that kind of perspective stuff and, and having space to, uh, work through the demons that, drove that insecurity and, and drove that mania, um, was, was a huge help. So I've worked with life coaches over the years. I've, 
uh, call out um, my mindset coach, Justin Ferriman, in the book because he's been the most impactful over the last couple of years. And I think he's a complete master at, at helping find and fix mental bottlenecks. Um, so that, it's just, and the other one is like, I have a personal worldview that everything works out for good in the end. So go in the midst of bankruptcy, in the midst of, um, not having a clue what to do next and feeling like a complete failure. It, it was just knowing it, give it time and it'll work out in the end. So this will, this will all be useful. And I'll tell you, my wife and I, we talk about this all the time. Now, it's been a while since people have asked us, but we've said it frequently that we wouldn't wish what we went through on anybody, uh, but we wouldn't change it for the world because it helped us grow, it helped our marriage get better. And we're 13 years on now and have a fantastic marriage and great family and great life. And so it's, uh, I'd say those are the ramblings of what got me through it. That's kind of amazing, dude. I love that. Just rounding off the uh, interview, really, though, just one of my, again, my other favorite question on the show is if you were to give three pieces of advice to any of the people listening to this, which is mostly like entrepreneurs that are, you know, they hit that roller coaster every so often where they hit a low point and a high mm-hmm. point, or they just hit a plateau and they don't know how to grow their business. What three pieces of advice would you give them? Uh, yeah, I'd say uh, on a practical level is to take time to actually inspect the business, inspect why what's causing the root cause of this roller coaster and not to sound all douchey like uh, an author that wants to hide all his secrets in his book, but I, I walk through how to find that in the book, Bottleneck Breakthrough. So it's... Uh, on a practical level, I think the the biggest problem is business owners don't want to inspect reality. They don't want to face the music, so to say, so to speak, that they they know something's wrong, but they don't want to face up to it. So I'd say on a practical level, um, inspecting, truly inspecting, taking a very sober perspective of what's going on in the business and what needs to be fixed, even if hard decisions need to be made, people need to be fired. Clients need to be rates raised. All, all of the difficult stuff that we don't want to face as, as business owners is, is step one. Um, the, the second piece I would say is that in the end, none of this matters. I don't want to sound nihilistic or promote stoicism, but I think it. Uh, I think in the grand scheme of things, I've had clients who've, whose businesses have gone under after great growth and profits and some who've gone down like mine in a ball of flames because external factors took place and everybody survived. Everybody's moved on to do find fulfill, fulfillment elsewhere. And so in the end, your business, your little kingdom doesn't matter. <laughs> like I don't want to make you feel hopeless, but it's not that big of a deal. It's not mm-hmm. if it goes under and all your employees have to go find other jobs, they'll be fine. Nobody's going to, uh, die from it. Uh, and so I, I think that, that more sober perspective that, uh, none of this matters in the end, uh, that if it's going to go down, it's going to go down and you're going to grow through it and you're going to learn a lot and you're going to move on. And so I, I said, 
that the stuff we faced during bankruptcy and we had a miscarriage during that time and uh, had some challenges in business uh, in, in our relationship and all that, that I, I, I had heard of guys that had committed suicide over that stuff. And like, I never once had any of those thoughts and that doesn't mean I'm better than people who have suicidal thoughts. It just means that for whatever reason, it didn't take me to that darkest spot. And, but I've gone through some really hard stuff and we survived and we've never been homeless and, um, we've never, never gone without. And so I, I think that's the biggest thing is removing the fear of ultimate failure in the mind of the business owner takes a lot of that pressure and stress away. Cause I, I think that's the, for me at least it, that was a big, big driver was I had an MBA in entrepreneurship from uh, Fresno state and here I am filing bankruptcy, having to go take a job. And I was teaching at the time too at Fresno state. I started teaching business plan writing and here I have to admit to my entrepreneurship students that I failed in my venture and had to take a job and, and none of them cared. None of them thought horribly of me. None of them uh, stopped showing up to class or anything like that. They all got value from my hard, hard lessons. And that's the goal, right? Of passing the the school of hard knocks onto others so they don't have to go through it. But, exactly. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's my biggest encouragement. I see a lot of people. Facebook's a great uh, social psychology experiment of seeing a number of, of people despair and share their dark dark moments on there and um i always whenever i can if i've got a relationship with them i always reach out and say look it's not as bad as you think it's never as important as you think and really at the end of the day i think it's all make-believe anyway um not that we're living in the matrix or anything like that but business and the rules of business are whatever you make them to be and whatever your belief system is of how hard you have to work or how much money you deserve or how many, how great your employees are or not, or, or whatever it all stems back to, to your belief system. Yeah. I mean, the old saying is your inner world, your outer world reflects your inner world. Mm -hmm. Totally right. Yeah. Yep. That, that's the truth and what it is. Now, something I want to touch upon, which is your second point. Um, just trying to remember what my actual point was. So just remind me very quickly, what was your second point in particular? You started off and then like, we yeah, so the yeah, the tactical point was the first of inspect your business. And then the second point was it doesn't matter. Your business That's doesn't it. matter. The, the, right. the failings of it don't matter. Your employees having to Everything find other matter. jobs. It, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And I'm being, being very blunt with no, it, but yeah, but it's yeah. true. I mean, like something that really helped me through like my darkest times was um, realizing and something that. I urge everyone to kind of watch. I don't care if you're an atheist or you have a faith. Mm -hmm. I don't really care. You know, happy to you, more power to you. Here's what you do. Go on YouTube and just type in journey to the center of the universe. It's a six minute long video. And it's a video that basically takes you from the center of the earth all the way to as far as they can see on a universal scale. Right. And it goes through, does it go through the different star sizes? Yeah. And the, it doesn't show you like, Oh, the size of the different stars. It just kind of goes through different, parts because if you go north you'll see alpha centauri mm -hmm. you'll travel this many light years and this many centuries and millennia and the speed of light to reach here mm -hmm. um and this is what will happen and you know it just shows you it goes could you see each each of these little um stars as you get further away is no longer just a star it's an entire galaxy galaxy right yeah and that right. should show you more than anything 
how tiny you are. So the fact that you have all these problems, fair enough, you know, everyone goes through them. What I'm saying is just realize as, um, I think it was Plato or Socrates, I can't remember which one said it. They said that you want to stop looking up at your problems as if you're the ant and your problems are the human. Mm. Start looking at them as a celestial being. You're a celestial being looking down at the earth and the problems that you have mm-hmm. are that of a celestial being looking at a problem on earth. You're mm-hmm. so totally far apart in size that you shouldn't let it rule you. It's actually the same reason I actually carry a marble. And mm. I carry three things in my pocket, a marble, a, a piece of slate, and a vintage 1986 two-pound coin that I found in my apartment when I was dead mm. broke. It was like, I found it in my apartment. I was like, holy shit, I'm going to keep this. It also has a story. The slate thing, I hold it in my hand every time I feel like shit. Some mm. gratitude, instant happiness. Um, and the last thing, the marble was given to me. And I remember the first time I held it in my hand because the marble is the shape of the earth. And I said, mm-hmm. and the friend that gave it to me said, anytime you feel overwhelmed, take it out, hold it in your hand, just go... Just look at it and go, wow, the world is literally in my hands. Mm-hmm. Not metaphorically, but also truthfully, the world is in your hands. Make of it as you will. The yep. situation will pass. And, you know, it, it always does. People can get mad at you for a little bit, but it always sorts itself out. Um, but Josh, thank you so much for being here to start with. I yeah, really my pleasure. This was this. fun. I'm glad it was. Guys. I urge you like crazy, go check out bottleneckbreakthrough.com. Go order the book. But if you could do me a favor, go to bottleneckbreakthrough.com and get it from there specifically. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Josh is going to do, uh, I, knowing Josh, he's going to do something crazy with it. So yeah, you can um, go there. There's a book page. It's just bottleneckbreakthrough.com forward slash book. And um, got a few different bonuses uh, for the first few weeks of uh, see, it, its launch. So he's going to do something crazy. If you buy four copies, um, I'm going to do a eight week, uh, webinar series, walking through the book, answering questions, getting you to find your first bottleneck and break through it and take oh, action. So that's going to be awesome guys. Go check it out for sure. It's, um, I, as I said, I've read, a, I've read the manuscript version of this on digital cause he sent it to me. Thank you again, John, mm-hmm. for that. It's probably one of the, one of the best books I've read on course strategy initially. Um, okay. Of course I'm reading through it right now because it's been what four days i'm not a mm-hmm. fast reader so it'll take me a little bit longer to get through but from what i've read so far i've really enjoyed it guys go check out bottleneckbreakthrough.com annoy the crap out of josh as much as you can online try and find him and just you know don't send him shit without asking him because <laughs> it just won't work out very well for you he'll be like who the fuck sent me this <laughs> it's really nice just to ask him first and uh, as always we're sponsored on the show by adlamarcy.com Go check out the rest of our episodes we have on there. And do me a favor, guys. Share this if you enjoyed it. Review it. Um, give us a comment. Whatever it is. Um, it's always appreciated. I always read them. Josh, thank you again for being such a great uh, guest. My pleasure, Adel. All right, guys. I'll see you on the next episode. Take care.